The opinions expressed in the Epsilon Theory podcast represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Here we are at uh, the most recent installment of the Epsilon Theory podcast. Uh, this is Ben Hunt at Salient Partners, and uh, we decided to do something a little different today. I'm joined, as always, uh, by our producer, Michael Correo, uh, who heads up our investor relations group. And uh, Michael, why don't you, you explain what, what we're going to try to accomplish today? All right. Well, I've got a pile of questions in front of me that we've printed out. Uh, from your over 100,000 readers, which, which is incredible. Uh, I think we'll kick it off with some questions uh, regarding the Fed and Janet Yellen and then move on to some other interesting topics uh, that you've addressed recently in your notes and uh, that your readers are clamoring for, for more information about. So this is really fascinating. And before we even jump in, I'll remind everyone that they can reach you at bhunt at salientpartners.com and also your Twitter feed, which is terrific, at Epsilon Theory uh, on Twitter. And uh, you're also reachable on LinkedIn and a variety of other ways. And, and I really do try to respond to everything, um, so even, even the occasional nasty stuff. So uh, Keeps you on your toes. It does. It absolutely does. It's okay. Yeah. So we're going to go to our first question. It says, uh, hi, Ben. I'm an avid reader of Epsilon Theory and do quite enjoy your analysis. You discussed in your latest piece the marketing, so to speak, of central banks and Yellen. I'm a trader on a funding and liquidity desk, and I deal in U.S. treasuries and other U.S. rate products, but not so much in equities. In my humble opinion, Janet Yellen has confused markets and her lack of consistency. Over the course of the last four months, we went from having four hikes priced in to two, with cloudy rationale and a number of arrows pointing to global concerns as the reasoning. In yesterday's Fed Minutes, and this is from March, the word global showed up 22 times after only showing up four times in December. All of this has caused a number of market players, in my opinion, and I include myself in this, to lose confidence in the Fed rhetoric. If Yellen were to come out and say she was hiking tomorrow, I'm just not sure I would believe her. She would have some work to do, of course. I still watch for what she says, but increasingly other Fed speakers seem to be ignored. Do you think that this equates to bad marketing or that we may be seeing a shift in the way we view policy? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it is, it is marketing, that, that's for sure. And it is poor marketing in the sense that uh, no longer are we believing in our heart of hearts, whatever the Fed or the Fed governors say. But and this is particularly apropos. Uh, you know, we're recording this after the uh, uh, the June meeting yesterday in the, the the June press conference, where I think you had a lot of people scratching their heads uh, after that performance because certainly in March it was all about global risks. Uh, we may never raise rates again. Then you got into uh, May. Pronouncement then was that well, you know what we we're looking to do it here. We're we're looking to raise rates in June and July. And then of course we had the meeting uh, most recently, this June meeting where she's back to being uh, uber dovish. Look, I I, I, I sympathize with the, the the letter writer saying that uh, it's hard to believe a word they say, 
But that doesn't mean that it's going to stop impacting markets uh, even more so. This, this is the hallmark of what common knowledge is all about and something I write a lot about. In a common knowledge game, the game playing that's going on, it doesn't matter whether you believe the speaker, the missionary in game terminology or not. All that matters, the only thing that moves the game is whether you think everyone else has heard what the missionary said. And clearly with somebody like Janet Yellen, you know that everyone in the world heard what she had to say. And if you know that everyone else has heard what Yellen said or some other policy missionary like a Draghi or anyone else, then you must, you must, in a very rational sense, go along as if you believed what she said. That's, that's the real crux of this, is that to be a, an effective participant in markets, you don't want to believe them in your heart of hearts, right? You don't want to really look at the emperor with no clothes and say, well, I don't even trust my own eyes. I guess the guy really is you know, wearing a fine suit of duds. No, you have to understand that you really are seeing a naked emperor. But to be effective in the world as it is, so long as the game goes on, you've got to play as if the emperor is wearing a nice set of clothes, as if Janet really means what she says. Sorry. It's, it's, it's a hard way to live. It really is. But it's, uh, it's, 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 it's the world we're in. So following on that, uh, the, the next letter we get from a chemist. Okay. And he says, uh, hi, Dr. Hunt. I am a PhD currently modeling molecules with quantum chemistry and new statistical methods. Cool. Well, that's yeah. great. Whatever that means. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, with an interest in investing. There you go. All right. So there's the tie-in. I have been following Epsilon Theory since shortly after you started publishing it and have also seen your interviews on Real Vision TV. Great. I was wondering if you've applied any of your game theory analysis to the current FOMC game of trotting speakers like Dudley, Williams, and Rosengren, uh, mm -hmm. all, Fed all Fed governors, governors yeah. uh, to say that a, a rate rise is on the table without them actually going through with a rate rise in uh, this letter's from May, but he's referencing a rate rise in June. What sort of game could be, they be playing if they're not going to raise rates? If they don't, then they are going to lose even more credibility. They can't say the data was not supporting a rate hike because two of the three have said that the data is there or almost there. So how would you parse this current game? Yeah, you, you know, people, uh, I get a lot of questions about, about Fed credibility uh, as if it were this, this magical thing that, you know, had to be maintained at all costs. And, and it's the difference between credibility and whether the words can actually move markets. So, you know, it's describing in, in relationship to the, to the other question we had, it really doesn't matter whether you believe them or not. And, and I don't think they believe themselves. I, I think that they are absolutely jawboning. It's what they call communication policy. It is the use of words for effect, right? It's not the use of words to accurately communicate what they actually believe. That's, that's not it at all. It's, it's using the words as another tool in the toolkit. And that's incredibly effective. Uh, they can vacillate, they can go back and forth as much as you want, but they still have that impact on markets. And ultimately, that's all they care about. Again, a really sad way to live, but it's, 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 uh, here we are. Our next note comes from a credit analyst in Australia, and he says, Hi, Ben. Really enjoyed your Hobson's Choice notes. This is back in March. Yep. Many thanks for it. 
I find your comments of a policy-driven market particularly interesting. It appears to me that you're arguing that central bankers will continue to support risk assets for the considerable future, or at least until their ability to influence behaviors and mindsets no longer exists. So even if someone is bearish equities, for example, based on valuation, while the underwriting of risk assets by central bankers is taking place, this is more dominant and should be considered, right? Spot on. No, no. Listen, that, that, that is exactly what's going on in the world today, where you, it, it's very hard to buy stocks or buy bonds or buy any sort of, of financial asset on the basis of valuation. It's just really hard. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's only one aspect of, of I'll call it the, the bull case that remains on a, on a semi-valuation basis, and that is that you've got equities, you've got stocks that are yielding more in a cash dividend than most bonds are. And when you're in that situation, the, the, look, the bonds can continue to go up in price. Right? So if I buy a bond today that's yielding zero in Europe, I buy bonds yielding zero, it can go to, to the, the price of that bond can go higher. But if I'm buying that bond, not because I want the price to go higher, but because I need the actual income, well, it doesn't do me any good, right? That, that, that bond can go up in price, but I'm, I'm the meaning, the reason why I'm buying is for the income. So I think a lot of people will continue to buy stocks, particularly these high dividend payers, because it's really a bond substitute. It's an income substitute. So I, I get that. So to me, though, that's the only, that's the last remaining um, valuation or, or um, you know, fundamental rationale for why you'd want to buy stocks. Right? They're, they're, they're being propped up in price by central banks. So if you, uh, um, it's very hard to buy on valuation. You have to buy on the basis that this will continue and the banks will continue to, as this writer says, underwrite risk assets. So we're going to turn to Japan now. We get a note from a reader that says, Hi, I've been reading your notes for quite some time, and it has been immensely useful. Do you think what's been happening with the Japanese yen, U.S. dollar, is undoing the narrative fix, which happened post-Draghi's recent action? The Japanese central bank doesn't seem to be getting the outcome it wants, and it appears that market participants are interpreting Yellen's decision to go slow on rate hikes as competitive. Or at least, that's what I see as I scan the headlines. So are we already on the path where it's becoming common knowledge that negative rates are going to backfire, as we've seen with the Japanese yen, and the major economies are competing with each other? If the negative rate experiment comes to, to, to be seen as a failure in Japan, then it probably wouldn't matter who else has got the result of, in doing it. Wouldn't that, that be a clear and un, unequivocal sign that central banks have run out of ammo? So look, I, I don't think it's that, and certainly Japan, I don't think, sees negative rates themselves as the failure. Uh, it didn't have the impact they wanted, right, which was to, to, to devalue their currency. But they've got this, this they're, in a, they're in a terrible spot. Frankly, I don't know what they're going to do. Because it's, it, the real issue for them is that if the U.S. weakens, if the U.S. is dovish, then the end's going up. The end's going up in value. It, it, we're in this environment now where when any one player of the big four, U.S., Europe, Japan, and China, whenever one of the players makes a move, 
it hurts all the others. Right? There, there, there is no stable outcome here where any one currency can move without it impacting the others in some negative fashion. Right? If the dollar goes up, yes, that's good for Europe, that's good for Japan, bad for China. Bad for the U.S., bad for commodities, bad for risk assets, bad for emerging markets. If the dollar goes down, good for China, good for commodities, good for emerging markets, bad for Japan, bad for Europe. Right. So, so, so there's the when you've got the biggest barge out there being the Fed, that's what ends up driving all of the the the, the lesser central banks. And of the four, Japan is the least. In order. Fed, Fed, China, then ECB, then then, then Japan. But my, my answer to every macro macro question is China and the Fed. It's it, that's that's the answer to every question you want to ask. I'll try. That'd be kind of boring though if we just go through <laughs> these lists. And I just yeah, we'd be done really quickly, done Ben. Quickly, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, our next question uh, starts to move away a bit from the Fed. Uh, hi, Ben. Thank you for hosting the webcast this week. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. And this is back in March. I intuitively agree with you on your bullish equity stance for now. Maximum pain trade, Wi-Fi at the Fed, PMIs improving, etc. What signals and events are you looking at to suggest risk on fatigue? Curious if you have any defined uh, signposts. Maybe you could address this. Yeah, sure. Look, I, I absolutely look at uh, issues of market breadth. Meaning, uh, uh, what you tend to see in in in, in any sort of uh, rally over time is that the the participants in that rally it narrows, right? So that that you end up with just a, a few companies accounting for the uh, the the vast majority of whatever uh, is moving in, in in an overall index. So I, I do focus a lot on on market breadth, uh, somewhat on market volume. But again, the, the, the biggest issue for me is what's happening with the dollar, the trade-weighted dollar, because that's a representation, it's the purest representation of this competitive monetary policy or cooperative monetary policy that's taking place in dominating markets today. So playing on that, uh, I know you've paid a lot of attention to shipping in the past. Yeah, as, trade as in a, general. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep. So, we, so we get this, this comment from a reader. Uh, who's quoting from a, a Stiefel Nicholas uh, research report, which says, quote, weak exports, still bloated inventories, and a cautious consumer continue to weigh heavily on demand for freight transportation services. Transportation and logistics analyst John Larkin of Stiefel Nicholas writes in a research report. On the domestic side, the CAS Freight Index, a closely watched measure of freight shipping by road and rail, that's C-A-S-S, CAS Freight Index, showed shipments declined 4.9% in April compared with the same month last year, while spending on freight shipping declined 8.3%. What say you? Well, look, there's still more evidence that what we have is an earnings recession of anything in the U.S. to do with energy, industrials, and manufacturing, and hence transportation. It's, a, it's an earnings recession because to date, the pain is being suffered on, as this statistic is showing, in more in the prices paid than in the actual volumes. It's down in volumes. It's down even more in either the, the revenue you get from exports, the prices you're willing to pay for shipping, etc. What it means is all these companies are taking it, uh, they're, they're taking the hit primarily in price. 
And one of the things I'm watching really closely to see if this earnings recession in the U.S. translates into a a real, quote-unquote, or a jobs recession in the United States is to look at the jobs report, for example, this most recent one in June, and say, well, are these industrial and manufacturing companies, are these transportation companies, are they starting to actually cut back on jobs? That is, have they taken as much pain on prices as they can, and so now they have to cut back on either industrial production uh, or on or on jobs. And unfortunately, this most recent report and in the industrial production numbers this month, you saw that that's starting to happen. So maybe, maybe you know, one report doesn't make a trend. It's something I want to watch really carefully, though. The, the other thing about this this note that I think is spot on is that globally, that trade pie, that global trade pie, is starting to shrink. And it's been shrinking since competitive monetary policy began in the summer of 2014. This, to me, is the, um, the, uh, the most concerning and the most likely driver of any sort of deflationary event, like China floating their currency and devaluing, like something of a trade war. You know, when the, when the pie starts to shrink, every country starts to defend its slice of the pie that much more vehemently. That's at the root of all of the currency issues we're having today, and it's the root of what I fear in terms of either a U.S. recession or another leg down in the global economy. Okay, our next note I think is probably one of my favorites. It's a it's a it's a downer too, no oh, surprise. Good. But uh, but it's kind of snarky and I like it. <laughs> uh, so uh, he he the, this gentleman this reader writes um, after watching you recently on Real Vision TV another plug for them. Uh, you did an interview with Grant Williams yeah. and he kept pointing out that the U.S. is due for a recession. Mm-hmm. This was this was a great part of your your conversation with him. He says, while I tend to agree with him in that I don't believe that the powers that be can completely overrule the business cycle, it occurred to me, based on your writings, that everything is about the narrative. He's paying attention. Yes, love that. What if they fudge the numbers during this quote-unquote recession so that the National Bureau of Economic Research doesn't come out and state that we're officially in a recession? Then, after the recession's over... The data revisions come out and the real, or at least the more real numbers, show that not only were we in a recession, but it happened so long ago that it's already over. It seems to me that everybody feels... That's happened before, you know. When? No, we've we've had a couple of small recessions where, and this is just the nature of this beast, where the, the, the recession is announced after the recession has already passed. Wow. It's like small heart attacks. Yes, exactly. Okay. It seems to me that everyone feels that things are worse than they are according to the numbers, and perhaps that's just because in our confidence-based economic system, they're manipulating the narrative so that when the truth does come out, it can be sugar-coated as, well, yes, things were worse than we thought, but it's over now, so don't worry about it. It's like the old saying, if a tree falls in the woods but no one is there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound, only if it's a recession occurs in the U.S., but the numbers never show it, did it really happen? Just a thought from an extremely frustrated, all-in cash since September 2007 non-investor. Ouch, ouch, yes, that, 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 that would be frustrating. Uh, and it, like I say, this, this, this actually has happened before. I think, you know, we had kind of a double-dip recession, uh, 2000, and then, uh, then, then again in 2002. And, and what you find in these situations, and look, it's, it, it's not uh, as a result of any sort of and I want to distinguish between what the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, does and 
what this reader is, is, is talking about. The NBER, I think, actually does a really good job. And the, the nature of the beast is that to define a recession, uh, you know, it, it is absolutely in the eye of the beholder. And the, the, the rough rule of thumb is, is two consecutive quarters of, of GDP decline. And obviously, you don't know that you've got two consecutive quarters of GDP decline until you're well into that third quarter. Uh, and, and so it, it, it can be challenging to, uh, to, to do this. But the larger point about creating a narrative of emergence from recession once it's already been announced, like that, that is absolutely part of the playbook of the, of the powers that be. It's the whole notion of green shoots. The whole notion of green shoots, which you see popping up, it was really part of the, the 2009 narrative. Uh, you still kind of see, it, see it coming up um, you know, every now and then in different situations in Europe and in Asia. But the whole notion of green shoots is simply that things are not getting worse as quickly as they were getting worse before. Right? Not that things are getting better, but that things aren't getting as bad as quickly. So there, there, there are lots of ways to, to, to frame this narrative uh, and use of data to support that is absolutely par for the course. Or they can just threaten them. Uh, and our next reader sent you an article uh, that says China presses economists to brighten their outlooks. Oh boy, yeah, this is great. Yeah. And the, the subheadline is analysts and business reporters with gloomy views are urged to hew government's more upbeat line. And he, he, he adds a note that says, incredible, I now understand why EM-focused macro hedge funds are slowly shutting down when there's no reliable high-quality data and when the market is explicitly manipulated to the point of threatening economists. What's a hedge fund manager to do? You have to go with the flow. And, 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 and that's, it, that's the hardest thing to do because you're not, you're not acting on, none of your models work, uh, none of the information that you would put into your models work. Uh, it's an impossible situation. And people wonder why, you know, the MSCI didn't take China in uh, on, their, on their equity shares this most recent go-around. There's a good example for why not. Our next note uh, changes the subject slightly. Uh, it says, Mr. Hunt, we just finished watching your Real Vision video, and you mentioned something that caught my attention but was not expanded upon. You and Mr. Williams agreed that a large government could not be run as a corporation. In, in basic terms of debt, I do agree with you. Base collateral, which is U.S. Treasury, is the risk-free rate, which all of the world economy does rely upon to function, therefore it could not default. It must be my own lack of knowledge, but you both agree that the principle itself is not viable for the life of me, and I, I can't see why. If you could point me in the right direction, I'd greatly appreciate it. Look, it's, 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 a, it's a reasonable question, and it's, and it's always tempting to think that, well, what if we just ran our government like we ran business? Uh, wouldn't that be the, the, the way to have a more efficient government? And it probably would be if efficiency were your goal, if, if profits were your goal. So, look, the, the, the notion of running a government like a business is, is almost the, the, the textbook definition of fascism. And the, what it is in opposition to is what I'll call small l liberalism that government should be for the preservation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can even keep in the, 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 the preservation of property in there if you want to. Uh, but the point is, is, is that government 
is not there to be economically efficient. You're not trying to maximize profits for the benefit of your shareholders. You're trying to preserve liberties, at least in the Western tradition. You're trying to preserve free voting. You're trying to preserve free markets. You're trying to preserve the ability for individuals to achieve their pursuit of happiness. So, you know, that at its core is why you just can't and shouldn't, not just can't, but you shouldn't run a government the way you run a business. Should you try to be efficient with what you spend money on in your government? Absolutely. But you're not doing this for the sake of profit. And that's why you just you just can't run a government or shouldn't run a government the way you run a business. Now let's turn to No the, matter what the Donald says. Well, I was just going to say, let's turn to the businessman now uh, who wants to run our government like a corporation. So we get a note, uh, a very impassioned note, I think, after your one of your most recent uh, Epsilon Theory notes. Yeah, I had a little dig there, yeah. Uh, well, people, people certainly latched on to it. Uh, this, this gentleman writes, if we ever want to break out from the nightmare 1984 we find ourselves in, we have to take risks. Voting for the status quo seems most scary to me. The only candidate who threatens all of the elements of the status quo is Donald Trump. The last time a candidate threatened change was Ross Perot. Everything he predicted about job loss came to pass. Your snide remarks about the Donald mm -hmm. fly in the face of how low the bar has been set by Obama. I mean, how much worse could he be? But the change he stands for will certainly bring us closer to having the opportunity to make much better choices. I guess Upton Sinclair quote, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding. It seems strangely relevant to your latest Epsilon Theory essay. I just don't see any other available options. Well, you know, I, 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 listen, I, I'm very sympathetic to the notion of uh, trying to find something uh, that, that, that's not the status quo. I'll, I'll share a little personal note. I mean, this will maybe surprise some people. I, I, I voted for Obama in, in, in 08. Hi, my name's Ben, and I voted for Obama. Yeah, I, okay. I know, I know, I know. That's right. The 12-step program around that, I think. And, and, and I did because I wanted change. I wanted, and I thought he would, go to Washington and just burn the place down. I, I, that, that was really my, my thought process there. And instead, I, I think he actually turned out to be a profoundly conservative, you know, not in the right-wing sense of the word, but a, a profoundly conservative uh, uh, president. Uh, so I'm, I'm more sympathetic than you can imagine to the notion of uh, doing something to uh, upend the, the, the status quo, which I find uh, favors not the 1%, but the 1% of the 1% uh, above all else. Uh, to me, if you, if you don't understand that it's really a, a, a fight to the finish between the, 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 the uber wealthy and the rest of us, you're, you're just not paying attention. But I'm not willing to sacrifice, and again, I'm talking personally, I'm talking from the heart here, I'm not willing to sacrifice, again, those principles of small L liberalism, of individual rights and individual liberties. And uh, I think that 
We have candidates, frankly, on, on both sides of the political spectrum. It's not just the Donald. At least the Donald wear, wears his authoritarianism on his sleeve. Uh, you know what you're going to get there, I think. Uh, I think on the left, you tend to have smiley face authoritarianism, where it's wrapped in a much more pleasant uh, veneer, but is just as anti-liberal, again, I'm using the small l liberal here, um, as, as, as on the right. So, I, yes, I want change. I, I, I think the status quo is uh, ossified, that we are stuck beyond stuck. But uh, you can go from the frying pan into the fire. And going into the fire of anti-liberal uh, policies that I think would uh, go against the core principles of not just the United States, but of the Western liberal tradition, um, that, that's change for change's sake that I, I can't live with. All right, Ben. Well, we're going to close up the mailbag. This was fun. <laughs> Keep them coming, everybody. Hunt at salientpartners.com or get him on Twitter at Epsilon Theory. Ben, any final thoughts? Thank you, thank, thank you, Michael. It was it was it was kind of a downer talk today. We'll try to try to get some more uh, uh, hopeful comments the next time. Tell me, little girl, who do you resemble most, your mommy or your daddy? I don't look like my mommy or my daddy. I look like the mailman. <laughs> <laughs>